Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are blue Bibles in the seat in front of you that you are more than welcome to use and you're more than welcome to keep if you don't have a Bible of your own. And if you're in one of those blue Bibles, you can find our passage on page 9. Page 9 in the blue Bibles. We're looking at Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9 this morning as we continue our walk through the book of Genesis. And I love, I love one of the things Brian just prayed that, prayed it for Castleview and for us, but that they would remember that they are beholders of glory. That's a great phrase. And so I pray this morning that that would be us, that we would be beholders of glory as we look to the Lord and his word. So Genesis chapter 11, I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 9. You can follow along with me there. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, my guess is this passage is a story that many of us are familiar with. It's a story that has lots of layers and connections to other parts of Scripture, and we're going to explore some of those. It's also a story that has everything to do with our lives today. There's so many places we could go and things we could talk about, but this morning, I want to boil it down to two simple truths that we need to see in this text. This passage is about the towering pride of man that picks a fight with God. And it's about triumphant purposes of God to scatter the lofty proud and gather his lowly people. So let me say a quick word about each of those before we jump in. First, I said this passage is about the towering pride of man that picks a fight with God. Now, my guess is many or most of us might admit that, yeah, pride is a problem. I know that's not a good thing. We might even admit that pride is a big problem. So we're like, yeah, you can call it a towering pride. Yeah, I get that. The part that maybe we're not so sure is, I don't know what this idea of picking a fight with God. So where do I get that idea? Well, I get that idea from places like 1 Peter 5 and James 4 that both say the same thing. They say God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
That's an important word. He opposes the proud. It's not just that God dislikes pride and says, oh, they did that again. It says he actively works against it. He opposes it. As we saw in our call to worship earlier this morning, he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's doing something about it. And he brings down the mighty from their thrones. So pride, when you really boil it down to, and you kind of take off the shine and say, well, it's not too bad. When you see it for what it is, pride is us puffing up and poking God in the chest, challenging him, saying, oh yeah, God? It's picking a fight with God. So when we think too highly of ourselves and how good we are or how capable we are, so highly that maybe we don't even need God or we can do this better than him, it's not just a little harmless thought. Like, yeah, everybody's got some pride. Our pride is putting ourselves in opposition to God himself because God opposes the proud. That's the first thing. Second thing I want to say before we jump in is this passage isn't just about pride. What we're going to see is that it's also about how not even our sinful rebellion and our pride can stop God from bringing about his purposes. See, God has a purpose that we've been looking at the last couple weeks especially to see worshipers from every tongue and nation and people gathered around his throne. And while he scatters the nations in judgment, he also promises to gather them and redemption. And that kind of reversal, I call it a gospel reversal, where he, he scatters to gather, you're going to see those kind of reversals all over our passage. That what man does in pride, God undoes in judgment. And we're going to see it lots of ways, but what's interesting is that we see this reversal even in the structure of the passage. So if you want to go ahead and throw this slide up here when you get a chance. This is another one of those passages like we've seen earlier this might look familiar because we had one of these not too long ago. The fancy name is a chiasm. It just means it's like a mirror image that the colors correspond. There's something about the top that reflects what's going on at the bottom. So these are just a little bit of what's going on here. But to give you a flyover, you see that it starts, whole earth had one language. The bottom, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. The text actually in Hebrew, it draws attention to the word there in two places. Verse 2, people settled there. Verse 8, the Lord dispersed them from there. In the green, people plotted with one another. They say to one another, hey, let's do this thing. Down at the green at the bottom, the Lord confused them so they couldn't understand one another. There's no more plotting going on now. Then in the dark blue, they say, come, let us make bricks. Well, the Lord says, come, let us confuse. As a little bonus, there's actually, there's all kinds of wordplay. It's almost like this reads in Hebrew like Dr. Seuss reads in English. It's these tongue twister. He's doing fun things with language, but to make a point. And one of them is in that blue where they say, come, let us make bricks. It's, the word is like an N-B-L combination. I won't get into like how you say it, but down when he says, come let us confuse, it's L-B-N. He just flips the letter saying, oh yeah, you're going to make bricks, I'm going to confuse. You're going to N-B-L, I'm going to L-B-N. He's just showing you like, I'm going to undo anything that you think your pride can do. The light blue, they say, let's make a name for ourselves. The next light blue, God says, this is only the beginning of what they're going to do. 
they are going to try to do something worse. But then remember the thing about chiasms, why these help us so much? It's not just to see the correspondence. The real payoff is in the middle. Because that's where you get to see, okay, there's something at the dead center of this that is constructed to draw our attention to. And what we're drawn to is verse 5. And the Lord came down to see. That's going to be the hinge that this passage turns on. Is that, yes, man's going to do all that stuff up there in their pride. And then the Lord comes down to see it. And everything from that point forward is very different. So this is actually going to inform our outline. So if you're looking for an outline this morning, we have three points. In verses 1 to 4, we're going to see the towering pride of man. And then in verses 6 to 9, we're going to see the triumphant purposes of God. And in between there, the hinge between those two, in verse 5, is God's inspection of what man has done. Towering pride, triumphant purposes, God's inspection. Okay? So let's jump right in. Now as we look back up at verses 1 to 4, what you'll notice right away is that chapter 11 is found after chapter 10 in terms of reading through this book, but it takes place chronologically before. So chapter 10, last week, we saw the spread of all languages and peoples, right? But now what do we find here in chapter 11, verse 1? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So if you're just reading through and you get there, you say, wait a minute. The whole last chapter was about how all the languages and peoples spread. Now the whole earth has one language? What's going on? Well, this is like a flashback in a movie when you're, something's going on and then all of a sudden they flash back to it previously to help you understand why something is the way it is. Well, this is a flashback to explain the theological reason why the nations divided the way they did in chapter 10. We've seen this kind of thing already before in chapters 1 and 2. Not so much as a flashback, but in terms of a zooming in. In chapter 1, you've got the big story of creation, right? All six days, you see God created this big world. But then in chapter 2, you also get creation. But you see the lens zoom in to see more details about the creation of man. So it's not conflicting stories. They're not getting confused. They're just giving you more detail. So what chapter 11 is doing is zooming in on the part of chapter 10 where the language is divided. It's saying, how did that happen? Let's talk about that in chapter 11. So what do we see here in chapter 11? In chapter 11, verse 1, you've got a picture of a unified humanity. The whole earth had one language. Can you imagine that? They all understood each other. There was common language, common understanding, most likely some common culture. But where does it go from there? Verse 2, and as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, if you've been tracking with us through Genesis, when you hear something mentioned about the east, your ears should kind of perk up a little bit and think, uh-oh, wait a minute. Now, this is not as easy to see because it's a little tricky to translate where it says from the east. That word in front of east can be either from or toward which is not super helpful, right? We say, I either want you, they either came from there or they were going to there. It's a little confusing, but it, that's how the language works. But most commentators agree that what it actually should be translated as toward the east. So you've got this people moving 
toward the east. You say, okay, that's interesting, but why? Why does it matter? Well, wouldn't you expect before this big scene of sin to see people moving eastward? Why do I say that? When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, where do they go? God drove them out to the east. When Cain sins and God banishes him from the land, what do we read? Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You're going to see it later in Genesis when Abram lets Lot choose where he's going to live and Lot chooses the territory to the east, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. There's this picture throughout Genesis that as people move eastward, it's symbolic of them moving away from the presence of the Lord and away from his blessing. So now what we've got in these first two verses is this unified humanity migrating to the east to Shinar. So you've got people all together and they seem to be collectively moving in the wrong direction, away from God. Now, Shinar we saw last chapter in 1010 as the place where our buddy, the mighty warrior and hunter Nimrod, established his kingdoms. The first, it says, of which was Babel. So we talked about him last week. He's not a good dude. And now here you see, oh, so that's where his evil enterprise kicks off, is in Babel. So the people settle there in this land of Shinar. And that in itself is a problem. Now, why would it be a problem that people want to put down roots? People just want to settle down, live life. It's a problem because what God had called them to do was not settle down altogether, but to fill the earth. That was their calling by God. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He told Adam and Eve, right? Then he wipes out most of humanity in the flood. Noah and his family are left. He says, guess what? Same deal. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So here we see that in establishing this city, they are acting in direct opposition to God. And we're going to see why in a couple verses. The first in verse 3, we see this. So you got them, they settle down, and what do they do next? They say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So this is, this is noteworthy because they don't have good rocks for building, right? So they're not in a part of the world that would have just naturally occurring good stones to build with. So they say, okay, we'll figure out how to make our own stones. They don't have something provided to them, so they develop a new technology. Now, you hear technology and you're like, I don't think that's technology, man. That's bricks, when we think of technology, we think of circuits and wires and digital. But technology, and I looked this up to verify, so this is not my words, this is Merriam-Webster's words. Technology is simply the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes. That's all it is. So anytime you, you take something you know and learn and observe about the world and you put it to use to solve a problem or make something different, that's technology. It's the creation of something that allows us to do what we couldn't do, or it allows us to do something better, faster, more efficiently. So for these people, the ability to make this new building material called bricks 
pretty fancy new technology. This is, this is a major development. And so what do we tend to do? Think about as humanity has developed other technological breakthroughs. What do we do whenever we discover a new ability or develop new technologies? Well, we want to use it for ambitious purposes to show how great we are. That's like our first thought. Whenever we come up with a new way to do it, we're like, this will make me great. Well, guess what we find in verse 4? Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So one verse, they have three goals. Say, let's build a city, let's build a tower, and let's make a name for ourselves. But what's far more important than their goals is their motivation. The two main motives that you see here in verse 4 are fear and pride. Fear and pride. They want to build a city so that they're not dispersed and scattered over all the earth. They say, we don't want that. They think that there's security and safety and sticking together. They think if, if we spread out the way God told us to, that's risky. We're, we're, we're going to be afraid of being isolated and, and out on our own. That sounds dangerous. But if we build this strong city, if we put our heads together and our resources together, we don't have to rely on God for protection. We can protect ourselves. We won't need to rely on him to provide for us. We can rely on ourselves. If we band together, we don't need him. They're motivated by fear, and so they want to build a city. But it it says also that they're not only motivated by fear, they're also motivated by pride. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to be known. They want to be known now, and they want to be known into the future. They want people to remember them. They want a legacy. And their way to do that is to build this city and tower. They think if we do this, people will look at our accomplishments, and they will know that we are a people to be reckoned with. We are worthy of respect and recognition and admiration And not just now, but this tower and this city, this will last. And so our kids' generation will know it. Our grandkids' generation will know it. This will get us a name. But the tower is also a problem of its own. It's not just because they want to be well-known. Because the tower is not just meant to be an impressive architectural achievement. Did you see how the tower is described? With its top in the heavens. This tower, in their conception, is their way to get up to God. In fact, in, in their own language, this Babel would have meant the gate of the gods. What they saw is that what they built, they said, this is getting us to heaven. This is getting us to where God is. They think that through their hard work and their knowledge and their ingenuity, they can get to him. If they work together, there's, there's, no, there's no limit. And why do you think they want to get to him? Well, most people speculate that it's to wage war. To quite literally storm the gates of heaven. Because think of it. If they can build a tower, if if humankind has so much ability and strength and resources and wisdom that they can make their own way to heaven, surely they can topple the king. What's going to stop them? 
in their pride, they make themselves the opponents of God. So the picture we have here, this, you've got you've to see this. This is not just an innocent little project that goes awry. This is a picture of a unified humanity using all of its resources to build a civilization in opposition to God. A people who wants to establish and control their own destiny. If we don't depend on anyone else, we decide what our lives look like. A society built on human independence and self-sufficiency. A culture whose technology and social unity gives them confidence that they can achieve anything they put their minds to. Is this sounding familiar? What we have here in Babel is a picture of humanity's ambition to dethrone God, to unite the world against Him, and to make the earth a monument to their own greatness instead of His. And all of it is motivated by fear and pride. Now at first, when you hear fear and pride, those might seem like a strange pair. Two that you wouldn't associate going together. But actually, these two go hand in hand quite often. Think about them with me for a second. In our pride, we tend to think very highly of ourselves. We think that we're something special. We think we're better than someone else in some way. Maybe we know more than them. Maybe we've made better choices than them. Maybe we're better at our jobs than them. We can do the things they can't do. In some way, somehow, we're better. Pride is wanting to make a name for yourself. To be known for who you are and what you can do. And pride doesn't just think we're better. It wants others to recognize how great we are. Instead of singing what we sang earlier about your great name, the song we often in our hearts would sing is, And all the world will praise my great name. Pride is also thinking we don't need anyone else. You can handle anything on your own. You've got this. I mean, you've always relied on yourself, and look how far you've gotten already. Your life, you're a self-made person. You pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. You put in the work. You did this. You earned it. You're strong enough, smart enough, and determined enough to get through whatever life throws at you. Pride and ambition tell us we can be great and we can change the world. We can rise to the top, we can overcome any challenge, and we can be the best. That's pride. But we, even in our arrogance and pride, don't we often also wonder, but what if I can't? We simultaneously think, yeah, I am the best. And yet we wonder, but what if I'm not? What if I'm not extraordinary? What if I'm merely ordinary? What if I can't do it on my own? What if I'm not as talented or attractive or smart or as strong as I think? What if people don't like me or don't respect me or don't recognize me? What if, I get, what if I'm disconnected from others and separated? And what if I end up all alone. We can be both proudly confident of what we think we can do on our own, but also terrified and afraid that we might have to do it on our own. And I think there's some of this in all of us. We are people who are both proud and fearful, arrogant and insecure. 
we simultaneously think, I don't need anybody. But also wonder, but what if I don't have anybody? And this pride and fear doesn't come out just in how we relate to other people. I think it comes out in the way we interact with God as well. We can think, though we wouldn't say this out loud because we know better, but we think in our hearts, when the, in the quiet moments when it's just us and we're being honest, that we can earn our way to him. We can earn our way to God through good living. Yet in those quiet moments, aren't we also terrified that we haven't been good enough? There's that, that push and pull in the human heart that thinks, I can get to God, I can build the tower, but what if, what if I can't? We each try to build our own little cities to protect us. We pool our resources. We look for whatever it is around us so that we can find our own security. We try to build our towers to get to God through our own efforts. And we try to make a name for ourselves so that people will know, people will recognize just how great we are. So one of the questions we need to ask ourselves when looking at this text is not just, we don't just come to it and say, oh, those people. Instead we say, what's my tower? What's my city? How am I making a name for myself? What are the ways that fear and pride are conspiring together to get me to try to live independently of God? To think, I can do this. And when we're afraid that we can't do it, what else are we looking to? What else are we grabbing and linking arms with and saying, okay, I'm going to get all the stuff I need. I'm going to get the money I need. I'm going to get the career I need. I'm going to get the people around me I need. I'm going to get the house I need. I'm going to get whatever I need so that I don't need to depend on God. I can do this. And I'm going to show him. And I'm going to live so well while doing it, I'm going to build that tower and climb right up to him. How are we building our own towers? The question this raises, I mean, when we look at it, when we see the audacity that here we are trying to wage an assault on the God of the heavens, the question that has to come to our mind is, what's God going to do about that? How is he going to respond to people's prideful efforts to make a name for themselves? Well, verse 5, let's see. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So here's our hinge. Mankind had united together in their best efforts to oppose God and make themselves great. If this isn't going to work, nothing's going to work. This is all humanity. This is all we got. All the best brains, all the strongest laborers, all the most ingenious people working together saying, we're going we're to do this. And they build this tower that reaches to the heavens themselves. And yet, do you see the irony in verse 5? It's dripping off the page. God has to come down to see this tower that reaches the heavens. They're so proud that they built this thing, this massive monumental thing. And God says, what, what is that down? Wade, I, I think I see something. So he comes down. Low to see what this is. Man's best efforts to rise to God, we're supposed to see, they fall ridiculously short. God is not impressed by the greatest human accomplishments done in pride. He doesn't 
look at our resumes and say, you, wow, you got what GPA? How quickly did you rise to that level in your company? You're retiring with how much in your bank account? Wow, you won that award three times? He does, he's not impressed. And not only is he not impressed, he's certainly not worried about this arrogant uprising of people against him. We see the same idea here in Psalm 2. Here's what we read in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's, get, let's be free of God. Let's come together, figure out a way we can say enough of this guy. We can do it on our own. How does God respond? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is not threatened by the uprisings of humankind. Mankind can rally every person and every technology and every power to try to dethrone God and stop his purposes, but God and his anointed king aren't sweating it. They will not be stopped. And when God comes, he comes to inspect what mankind has done. He comes down and says, let me go see what you're up to. And what he finds when he inspects is rebellion against him. And God will not leave that rebellion unpunished. But what God is about to do in the rest of the passage, what God's about to do is not just punishment. It is, but it's not just punishment. It's also prevention. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What God is saying here is he knows that unity among people is not always a good thing. This is really key because we live in a time and a place where unity is the be-all, end-all. And unity, the Bible is gloriously adamant that unity is a precious thing but not at all costs. It matters what you're united around. And what we see here is that when people are united in their sinful rebellion against God, that is evil and dangerous. God knows that the unchecked pride and ambition for sinful glory would be catastrophic for the world he loves. That's why he says, they're going to do more. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. I need to put an end to this. And so God steps in and stops it before it's too late. This should sound a lot like what he does in Genesis 3. Do you remember after Adam and Eve sin and eat the fruit they were forbidden? What does God say? He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. God said, this is going to get worse. I need to step in now before this gets out of hand. Because when God sent them out of the Garden, it was both punishment and prevention. He prevented them from being cut off from him forever. By kicking them out of the Garden, God made a way for us to one day get back in. And even here in Genesis 10, Genesis 11... What God's about to do in punishment 
isn't the end of the story. And friends, sometimes in our lives, when God comes down to see and he finds the rebellion in our lives, when God stops our prideful tower building, all we see sometimes is the punishment. We just see the fact that we're not getting what we wanted and it's hard and it hurts. But have you ever considered that perhaps it's also his merciful prevention? Have you ever considered that God is perhaps wounding you to heal you? That perhaps he's knocking down your pride so that he can raise you up in humility? Consider just one example of many from the Bible. A guy by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar who just so happens to have been king of Babylon in the land of Shinar. We read this about King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, which is what Babel became, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my own power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's looking out over his life, over his kingdom and saying, I did this by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, for my name. Look at what I've done. And can't we relate? Like, aren't there things, no matter, you, you may think your life is, is small and humble and you're like, I haven't really done much, but aren't we all tempted to look at the things in our lives that we've accomplished or done or have and are and say, yeah, Look what I did. I did that. So what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, while those words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In other words, right at, when he thinks he's at the height of his power and majesty, God knocks him down. All the way down to living like a beast of the field. But eventually, this punishment has its intended effect. He is humbled and God restores his sanity and his position. And how does King Nebuchadnezzar respond? He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. Hear this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This great king was knocked down to a lowly beast and then God raised him up and he says, I, I learned the lesson. Me, this descendant of Babel in the same land, I learned the lesson they learned the hard way. You are able to humble those who walk in pride. Sounds just like what we find in 1 Peter and in James. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The prophet Isaiah even foretold what would happen on the last day when God once again comes down to see what mankind has done. He says this was what will happen in Isaiah 2. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, 
against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Friends, no matter how high we build our towers of pride, God will bring them low. He alone will be lifted up. God opposes the proud. And how does he do it here in Genesis 11? Look at verse 7. He says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So God confuses their languages and he scatters the proud. He creates division between the peoples. They literally can't understand each other. Like we say that metaphorically sometimes, like I just don't even understand people who blank. He literally makes them not able to understand each other. Why does he do it? So that they couldn't unite in rebellion against him. Because he divided their language, do you notice they left off building the city? In other words, they were no longer able to work together in a united fashion against God. What was once a united group of people building their anti-God civilization has now disintegrated into chaos and division. Now there's a fear of one another. They fear the ones who don't sound like them. They fear the ones who aren't like them. They fear the ones they can't understand. Sound familiar? And because of all this, what happens? They disperse over all the earth. This people who desperately tried to go against God's purposes and settle down in their own little kingdom of pride, but God's purposes wouldn't be stopped. They will fill the earth. And that is the focus of the passage. There's a lot of things. Like, so we've been talking about pride. We've been talking about this. The thing that we're most to take away from this is the scattering of the nations. It's what the people are afraid of in verse 4. And it's repeated twice as what God does in response to their pride in verses 8 and 9. He scatters them over and over. They say, we don't want to be dispersed. So God disperses. God disperses. This is the main point. But God isn't going to leave them. He's going to bring them back. He scattered and he gathers. His goal, remember, is a united people. But in his purposes, God divides to reunite. And when God reunites something he divided, he doesn't just bring it back together. He brings it back together better. Consider a few examples. In creation, God separated heaven and earth. But one day, from heaven, heaven itself will come down to earth. And when it comes back together, it'll be better. God took a man and he divided him. He took a rib out of him and split him in two. Made this thing called woman and then brought her back to the man. So they become one flesh again. He divided and brought her back. And man said, that's better. <laughs> that is better. And now we see God taking the nations that he created, that he formed and said... You guys aren't working this way. I'm going to divide you. But I'm not just going to divide you and leave you. I'm going to divide you to bring you back together better. How is it going to be better? Well, that's what the whole rest of the Bible tells us about God gathering the nations back into one people. I'm going to give you just a few examples, three examples. In Deuteronomy 30, we read this. 
Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Ezekiel 34. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And hear this one from John 11. There the high priest Caiaphas said these words. He said, It is better for you, Jews, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say that of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the way it happens. When we're wondering in Genesis 11, okay, how is this division that has trickled down and now it shapes the world we live in, how is that going to be undone? Is this the only way that peoples can be gathered into one is through the death and resurrection of the Son of God. Because before the people can be reunited, they must be redeemed. And when Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross, he died for all our sin and our pride. He went low so that we could be lifted up. He went down low to pay for all the times we wrongly lifted ourselves up. He was cut off and cast out so that we could be gathered back in. Friends, not only on a national level, but on an individual level, this is the only way to deal with our pride, is to cast it on Jesus. If we pretend like we, we don't have sin, we lie. We lie to ourselves and we lie to God. Instead, we are to confess it, to acknowledge the pride, the parts of our heart that say, I am something special and I want the rest of the people to figure it out. It's there. It lurks in all of us. And the only way that we can deal with it is to confess it before God and say, you alone are worthy of the worship that I long for. I confess my pride and instead I cast my sins on Jesus because he humbled himself in my place. And ever since he did that, ever since Jesus rose from the dead and gave his disciples a commission, guess what Jesus has been up to? He's been gathering his people from every nation into one new, united, redeemed people. That's why it matters. It's not a little thing that oh, I think every week you hear me come up here, I say, welcome to this gathering of Chapelwood Baptist Church. Because this, what we're doing right now, is part of that. This is a foreshadowing. This is a gathering of different, diverse peoples into one united people worshiping the king. And this is a little bit of what that's going to be like. So we get a glimpse every week. And that's why it's not incidental that we call it a gathering. It's a foreshadowing. Now you're saying, but wait a minute. A big part of this was languages. What about the different languages? What's God going to do about that? Well, in Acts 2, we get a sneak peek. There, in Acts 2, as the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, and as this church this redeemed and reunited people of God is just getting its start. Listen to what we read. When the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all together in one place 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? We know what it means. It means Jesus is gathering in his people. Jesus is undoing Babel. He's overcoming the language barriers to get the good news of God's mighty works to people from every nation and language. For God's people, the language of our mouths may remain different. But the language of our hearts, we all speak the language of Zion. And Pentecost was only a sneak peek. If you know the festivals, Pentecost was a festival celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. It's like when the first little bit of crops came in. You brought those and celebrated, hey, look, there is going to be a harvest. This is awesome. But you had a feast later to celebrate the fullness of the harvest. That was just the first little indicator that, okay, it looks like it's going to be a good one. Then later when the fullness came in, you had another festival. So what will it be like? When God gathers in the fullness of the harvest of nations and languages. Zephaniah 3 says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Friends, the Bible ends with people from every nation and every tongue worshiping the king. The pride of man will be brought low 
And Jesus alone will be lifted up in that day. The humble and happy people of God, it says, will be free from pride and free from fear. The purposes of God to gather the nations into one redeemed people will triumph. His kingdom will come. And until that sovereign work on earth is done, we live and pray so that everyone might know his name, not ours. Let's pray. Father, we declare this morning, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give the glory. For you alone, O Lord, are worthy to be praised. God, we confess that we too often do seek recognition. We want to be made much of. Instead, God, would you give us, would you show us that there is greater joy to be had in making much of you? God, would we live our lives dedicated not to building our own name, but to living for the glory of yours, the name that is above every name. God, we know that one day every knee will bow before that name, and we want to do it now in joyful, humble worship. We don't want to be forced to our knees later. And so God, would you help us be a humble, hope-filled people Would you free us from our pride, free us from our fear, and give us great confidence that your plan to form this one united, redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation will happen. We thank you for that, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.